0: This official podcast coverage of Auscert's 2012 conference is brought to you by Arbor Networks, Smart, Available, Secure, Datacom TSS, Discreet, Niche, Tailored, and Sophos, Secured. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special Auscert podcast. I'm Patrick Gray. The following is a recording of Susan Landau's plenary presentation here on the Gold Coast. She's a visiting scholar in the computer science department at Harvard University. Prior to that, she worked as a distinguished engineer at Sun Microsystems and held faculty positions at the University of Massachusetts and Wesleyan University. Her talk is titled Surveillance or Security? The Risks Posed by New Wiretapping Technologies. I hope you enjoy it. So thank you very much. Um, I'm going to talk about things from a US perspective, and that's because um, that's what I know. And there's also no point in bringing calls to Newcastle um, or slides to Australia. How are you doing? at some point it'll come up. Um, I want to focus on the U.S. perspective because I think that you all know a whole lot more about the Australian perspective than I do, and because we are, after all, the bullies on the block. And what we do... Um, do you want me to help? <laughs> uh, what we do affects what, uh, what happens here. So, as I said, I'm going to talk about the U.S. perspective. and. Um, so I'm going to start, I don't know how many of you have seen um, the film The Lives of Others. Um, it's a German film about the situation uh, just, post the fall, uh, just pre and post the fall of the wall. And it's amazing because what it shows you is the complete corruption of the society by the eavesdropping that occurs and the lack of privacy. I'm going to talk about government eavesdropping and I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of the U.S., as I've said. So where I need to start is the Fourth Amendment, which is something we have and you guys don't. Where we got the Fourth Amendment was from the British habit of investigating the colonists. And the way they did so is they had a warrant, but it was a general, what was called a writ of assistance, and they could go into a colonist's house and search through everything. So they believed the colonist was hiding guns, or they believed the colonist was writing seditious articles, But they had a writ that allowed them to search through everything. It didn't have to be particularized. And we fought against that. We fought a couple of wars against that. But in particular, after we won the first one, and we federated and became a nation, we passed the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their houses, persons, houses, papers, and effects, It's not just them there's people, but it's in their houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizure. And no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, and particularly describing the places to be searched. What that means is when when law enforcement has a search warrant and they're looking for a gun, they can open the night table draw to look for the gun, and they can also arrest you for the marijuana plants they see growing in plain sight. But if they have a search warrant for marijuana plants, they can't open the night table draw and arrest you for the uh, unregistered gun because nobody grows marijuana plants inside a, a night table draw. That law, that 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 right, was originally applied to wiretapping, was originally not applied to wiretapping, and we had a very famous court case in the 1930s where the Supreme Court said, Oh, they wiretapped outside the person's house by attaching all- alligator clips in the basement of the office building and outside their homes? That's not a search under the Fourth Amendment. It took 30 years before the U.S. Supreme Court said the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. You want to do a wiretap? You need a search warrant. And so we have two war- war- two main wiretap laws. Title Three. 1968 law, which governs all criminal wiretaps. There has to be probable cause that a serious crime is being committed. In, in 1968, there were 25 serious crimes. We've grown to over 100, and that's an important thing, because whenever you pass a surveillance law, the narrow purpose tends to grow over time. It has to be probable cause that a serious crime is being committed, that the communications device is being used in the commission of the crime, that, you have, that law enforcement has tried other forms of investigation and not succeeded. Wiretap doesn't have to be last resort. It just has to come extremely close to last resort. That was for criminal wiretaps. We did not have a law for national security wiretaps, for foreign intelligence wiretaps. Now, of course, you should note that we only need a law for wiretaps that occur inside the country. We don't need a law to govern wiretaps outside the country. National Security Agency can just do them. Of course, if they get caught by the other governments, they get into trouble. But they don't, the, the Bill of Rights only applies within the United States. So we passed in 1978 the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, um, has essentially the same rules as Title III, with one exception... Instead of a probable cause that a serious crime is being committed, you're tapping because you believe the person is an agent of a foreign power. That's a much lower level of proof. And the reason for the lower level of proof is Title III can put people in jail. FISA just puts them under investigation. People are very rarely prosecuted under FISA because foreign intelligence does not want to, the NSA does not want to reveal its sources and methods. So. Then we had a bunch of other laws that happened, including the Patriot Act, but the law that's important for me to talk to you about today is the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, or CALEA, and that is a very odd law. Title III and FISA talk about what the government has to do in order to wiretap, okay, what process they have to do, what process they have to use to convince a judge that they should have a wiretap order, which is, after all, an extremely invasive search. A normal search warrant, somebody knocks at your door and says, I'm coming to search your house, here's the search warrant. Wiretap order, they go to the telecommunications provider or the ISP, they say, we're tapping this guy, give us all the communications. If it's a Title III tap, the person only finds out when the tap is over, within 30 days. If it's a FISA tap, they need never find out unless that tap is used in a court case. But the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act was completely different. It didn't say anything about warrants for the government. Instead, it was about what telcos had to do to enable law enforcement to wiretap. So what had happened is law enforcement had run into trouble. Um, they had found that you know, the plain old black telephones, were, such as the older people in the room used to have in their houses, were relatively easy to tap because it was the public switch telephone network, which for those of you who don't know, highly centralized. Because voice quality diminishes each time it goes through a switch, the telcos, the AT&T in the United States, and I assume the same is true in Australia, decided to have a maximum of five switches that any voice call goes through. Well, if you have a maximum of five switches, you have a highly centralized communications network, becomes very easy to tap. In the 1990s, the law enforcement was facing other kinds of telecommunications, like cell phones. But these turn out not to be too hard to tap in one way because they're centralized. They were hard to tap in another way because you went from simple phones where in some cases you still had electromechanical switches to digital switches. Well, once you go to digital switches, all sorts of things are possible, like call forwarding. You didn't think of call forwarding as advanced communications technology, but it turns out the normal way to wiretap is you put the tap on what's called the frame in the telecommunications office, the central office, and it taps all the calls going out to the subscriber. doesn't work when you do call forwarding because the call never goes down from the central office to the subscriber. It gets turned around at the switch. And so law enforcement, the FBI in particular, was running into trouble with tapping call forwarding. So they went to Congress and they said, we need this law. Um, we need to be able to tap advanced switching technology. And they got a law that said, all digitally switched telecommunications, all digital phone networks, have to be built wiretap enabled, with the enabling, meaning complying with standards designed by the FBI. Now, I bet most of you in this room did not know that the FBI was actually involved in the design of telephone networks. You know now. Um, it's had its problems. The law was passed in 1994. Compliance was supposed to happen by 1998. Um, by 19, then it got pushed to 2001. Not all phones, not all digital networks are compliant still. But then we got to another situation. It's a situation that you guys all know very well, which is the internet. Now, some pieces of the internet are really easy for the FBI to listen in on. Because when you have centralized communications, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Gmail, or anything else where the communications reside in in the central server, because after all, that's what Facebook's and and Google's business models are. Anytime you have those communications residing in the central server, it's a different technology than tapping at the endpoints. But it's easy in terms of actually tapping, because Facebook and Google, for example, Both want to know what the communication entails in order for them to serve advertising or whatever else, in order for them to commoditize the content. So while the FBI, and when I say the FBI, I'm using FBI to stand for law enforcement, although the FBI is leading the charge on this one. So while the FBI had some trouble getting used to dealing with Facebook and Google and so on, they had to come to a new model. The Calia implementations that they had didn't work. They didn't have any kind of technical trouble because the content was still available. But when you get to Skype, a different thing happens. Because Skype is peer to peer. And now I'm going to do my one technical slide. I'm very pleased with Alice and Bob. So Bob is at the coffee house, for those of you in the back. And he is trying to VoIP with Alice, who's at an airport lounge. His VoIP, his local provider at the coffee house is Sips ISP. Alice's local provider is Fly ISP. Bob's VoIP provider is Packet Talk, Alice's is IP Voice. Bob wants to get in touch with Alice at IP Voice. Bob is being wiretapped by law enforcement. Where does the wiretap order sit? It sits at Packet Talk, because Packet Talk is Bob's VoIP provider. So Bob says, I want to communicate with Alice at IP Voice. So the SIPs ISP sends the, the correct message up to Packet Talk packet talk communicates with IP voice, IP voice says, oh yeah, Alice is online, she's at Fly ISP, here's her IP address, they do all the way at the top what's called a rendezvous, the VoIP setup up there, after that, the entire communication happens through the cloud. A VoIP communication through the cloud doesn't involve packet talk at all. That peer-to-peer communication is very complicated for FBI or any type of law enforcement that's trying to do wiretapping. Now, one could imagine all sorts of scenarios. Packet Talk sends a message to SIP's ISP, you need to wiretap Bob. Doesn't work. Doesn't work because you don't know who SIP's ISP is, and you don't know whether you want to send that communication. Suppose SIP's ISP is actually owned by Bob and his cohorts and is a, a, a bad guy. The last thing you want to do is alert Bob to, to um, the fact that he's being tapped. The fact that Bob and Alice move around constantly makes the job even more complicated. So, in 2003, the FBI said, we're having a great deal of trouble wiretapping um, IP communications, and we need help. And they went to the Federal Communications Commission, and they said... um, we need some help. What they finally got now. So I should backtrack a little bit and tell you a little bit about more about Kalia. Kalia talked about um, building in wiretapping capability for digital networks. It uh, digitally switched telecommunications networks. It specifically exempted, specifically exempted, information services, which in uh, 1994 meant the internet. And in fact, the FBI director was actually asked, "Do you mean?" What about voice communications over the Internet? I don't want to cover those, he said. The Federal Communications Commission, which actually implemented Calia for the government, said you could extend Calia to what's called facilities-based broadband. Facilities-based broadband means from my black telephone on my desk to this telephone central office, it looks like a phone line. Then it can be VoIP in the cloud, and then at the other end it can be whatever. It can be VoIP, it can be... Again, a, a real wire just like the old kind. They extended it. In terms of technology, that's still extremely easy to wiretap. It looks like an old, you put the wiretap on at the same place. In terms of law, it's a slippery slope, because it's all of a sudden extending Calia to, to um, information services. I talked to FCC last fall, and they said, we didn't expect that to pass. What happened is they said yes, got contested in court, and it, it went through. 2010, fall of 2010, FBI said, we're having a great deal of trouble. Wiretapping, we're going dark. We can't deal with encrypted conversations. We can't deal with communications providers who are outside the country. We want to tap. It takes too long to deal with them. We can't deal with peer-to-peer. you got to change things. They said that really splashly in 2010, in the fall of 2010. There was a hearing in, in February 2011. Um, sorry, they said that... Uh, in uh, 2010, yeah, February 2011, I, I spoke at the hearing. Um, one of the things that happened during the hearing is I brought out the fact that although, now the, the Congress people said, how come you don't have a bill? You've been talking about this for six months. Why are you here? And the, the general counsel from the FBI said, I don't know, you invited us. Um, but But then I brought up the point that I was aware that there had been some disputes within the administration from other parts of the government that opposed the FBI bill. Now, you might think maybe it was the chief privacy commissioner's officers in all of the agencies, but that's not actually where it went. I'll leave that for you to hang on to for a few minutes while I go on. There's one other thing I want to tell you. And you might notice this map. It's a typical U.S.-centric map with the U.S. in the middle. But there's actually a good reason why the U.S. is in the middle. um, And Australia is very barely connected to the rest of the world, which is the fiber optic cable that was laid out by the mid-2000s. You want to call Europe from Europe to Asia? It's better to go through the U.S. You want to call from South America to South America? Well, you can use a satellite communication if you're calling from Argentina to Brazil with a quarter second delay, which humans don't deal with very well, or you can go through the fiber optic cable in Miami. You wanna call from Taiwan to China? There was a while ago where you couldn't do that directly because of legal issues. But you could connect via a switch in California and that was no problem. And if you're AT&T and you're writing the contract, you know that at some time the policy is going to change. So you make the contract real for a really long time. So calls from Taiwan to China still go through long after through California long after it's easy to actually call direct. What that means is if you're at U.S. national security, you have the ability, well, the, technical capability, but not the legal capability, to listen in to calls around the world because they're transiting the United States. Problem was that they didn't have the legal capability because of FISA. They had to actually get warrants. And that was part of the controversy that happened in the United States over that period, most of which I'm not going to talk about today, but I needed to show you this map with the US in the center. It's changing now, by the way. So how efficacious are is wiretapping? Back in the 1990s, when we were fighting the crypto wars and fighting Kalia, you had the director of the FBI arguing that kidnappings were really important. And the reason he argued that kidnappings were really important is that he said he could go to each congressman and say, what if there was a kid kidnapped in your district? Wouldn't you want me to be able to, to rescue the kid? What if the call is encrypted? And I guess this is finally my time. I've been sitting on this for... Oh, probably 10 years. I had an associate director of the FBI talking to me about this, and he tried the same line, and I don't know if he knew my kids were about 8 and 10 at the time, but he tried it on me. He said, if your kids were kidnapped, wouldn't you, you know, pulling it on everybody. Turns out, Wiretaps were used in six cases a year. One thing we have in the United States, it's something I'd love to see across the world, is we have something called the wiretap report. It lists every Title III wiretap in the country, who the judge was, who the district attorney was, how long the tap was for, how many people were arrested, how many people were convicted, what the most serious crime was. What it doesn't tell you, what it doesn't tell you is whether the wiretap was actually useful. And the only way you would know that is if you actually went to the court case itself and tried to analyze it extremely carefully. The fact is, six cases a year, you don't make a wiretap law based on six cases a year. Other cases, wiretaps in the US passed actually because of gambling. Gambling and prostitution were victimless crimes that organized crime depended upon, and wiretaps were gonna be the way to get rid of organized crime. Um, they did have an effect, and one of the effects, and it's actually rather important, is they took organized crime somewhat off the telephone. and. Um, if you couldn't convict them, but you could make their job more difficult, that's actually a useful thing. Let me throw in here, of course, the fact that bin Laden was, was found was partially due to the fact that this expensive house did not have an Internet or telecommunications connection, making it very interesting. It also had a courier, which made him findable. And cases of terrorism. Cases of terrorism are really complicated. We keep hearing in the press in the U.S. trumpetings about um about uh, terrorism cases and, and how well they're doing. But when you look at actual numbers, there were 123 prison sentences out of those, that particular white paper, 14 of five years or more, six of 20 years or more. Only those numbers are really big. Only, only those numbers, those last numbers are important, but they're pretty small numbers. On the other hand, let me tell you about Najibul Ulazazi. He was the guy who wanted to blow up subway cars in New York, and he came pretty close to doing it. The way he got, there was a series of articles in the New York Times. First it was, they're investigating somebody who came from Denver, Pakistan, uh, uh, Afghan born, lived in Pakistan, immigrated to the States, went back to Pakistan, came back to the States, moved from New York to Denver, went, drove by car from Denver to New York, um, picked up by the police. Being investigated for terrorism crimes. Father and uncle arrested. He pleads guilty. What happened? Here are the things we know. He was tailed from New York, from Denver to New York. He was uh, stopped as he was about to cross into the Manhattan. Uh, his trunk was investigated. Um, at some other point, his laptop was examined. At some other point, um, he went into New York. He was being tailed. Unfortunately, New York City cops mistakenly told somebody who they considered a useful source within the Muslim community. That guy, not realizing the seriousness of what was happening, tipped off Zazi, who left. That was what we knew at the time. What came out later is that the second time Zazi rented a hotel room in Denver, not the first, but the second, FBI went in and found trace chemicals that had been cooked on the stove, trace chemicals in the hood of the the vents. Uh, The point. This came after three increasingly desperate calls to terrorism-controlled areas um, about how to mix things. I've just told you what tipped them into this was a serious case. So wiretaps are, in fact, sometimes extremely important. But the other thing that's going on is that transactional information is remarkably revelatory. Uh, With the exception of me, and not only because my phone doesn't work in Australia, I'm probably the only one who has my cell phone off all the time. My phone message says, this is Susan Landau's cell phone. If she's, She only has it on when she's traveling, and even then, only when she's expecting a call. But the rest of you are sending beacons out all the time. So did colleague Sheikh Mohammed, the guy who plotted September 11th and any number of other things. He was located through a cell phone, uh, not through the content, but through where he was. The July, one of the July 21st London bombers, so July 7th is the guys who did the damage, July 21 of the guys who tried to do the damage. The Brits tracked somebody to Rome. They thought they were getting to the friend of a conspirator. They, in fact, really found the conspirator. Um, in the U.S., The marshals, the US marshals who track fugitives, they've cut the average time of investigations from 40 days to two. Why? Because they check where the guy is at 10 p.m., they check where the guy is at 8 a.m., they check who his friends are in the in the the locale, and the next day they go in and arrest him. So they're incredibly useful. At the same time, they are being, at this point, incredibly abused. Unlike wiretap, unlike content, transactional information only needs um a subpoena which doesn't require very much effort uh, or oversight by the US gov- by the judge um and um we're seeing incredibly much uh use of cell phones to track all sorts of things that are clearly not serious crimes uh in many cases of course the transactional information is actually far more revelatory than the content so I would, posit, uh, I would hazard a guess that we're going to actually see changes in laws about transactional information, even though law enforcement finds it extremely useful. What's the bottom line in all of this? We're not in your parents' communications world. When I was growing up, to make an international call, you needed a telephone operator. Within 20 years, you could actually dial direct. And now, of course, you're in the situation where you can call somebody and you have no idea where they are. By the way, this is a very interesting information transfer. It used to be you knew where the person you were calling was. Now it's the telephone company that knows where the person you're calling is. We also don't have your parents' business world. We've got global outsourcing. We've got mobile communications. And we've got, as Eugene pointed out and everybody else has pointed out over the last three days, critical infrastructure using public networks, which to my mind is crazy. Um, we've also got all sorts of things. And in particular, let me just focus on the Cisco one for a minute. It used to be that we had different kinds of systems all around the world. Now we have many of the same systems all around the world, which is, means that when somebody in Vladivostok or in a southern district in China finds a bug in, in a switch that they're using there, it's likely to be the same bug somewhere else. And they can just access it remotely. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. But now let me tell you some things you don't know. When you build wiretap capability into a communications infrastructure or into applications, you build risk. When law enforcement had to go to, um, to telco and say, I got a warrant, there was a check that happened because they had to talk to the judge. They had to talk to the telco. When you remove the carriers, when you remove technical forms of inf- uh, minimization, you create risk. Um, how much risk? Well, you have risk of exploitation and over-collection. One example is when we passed what's called the FISA Amendments Act, which allowed warrantless wiretapping um, inside the U.S., uh, we discovered one of the communications that got picked up was Bill Clinton's. It's hard to imagine that a judge would pass um, any kind of court order. Uh, a judge not under Nixon would pass any kind of court order, um, to tap Clinton. The risks are not hypothetical. Um, everybody here know Vodafone Greece? Yes? No? That looks like a no. Okay, Vodafone Greece. Vodafone Greece purchased a switch from Ericsson. They didn't want wiretapping capability, so they didn't pay for it. First version of the switch didn't have it. Updated version of the switch had it, but Vodafone Greece hadn't paid for the wiretapping. It was switched off and it didn't have auditing capability. What happens? Somebody goes into the switch and wiretaps. Wiretaps 100 mem- senior members of the Greek government from, spring, uh, from June 2004 to January or March 2005, just the time of the Olympics. I'm talking prime minister, I'm talking head of the Ministry of Defense, head of the opposition party. An SMS message goes awry. And um, and uh, what they discover is that um, the whole system goes down. I've now told you everything. I don't know who did it. I've told you how it was done. Telecom Italia, you have 6,000 Italians, judges, um, politicians, referees, celebrities, wiretapped for 10 years, sans court order, presumably blackmail and bribery. Uh, Cisco wiretapping architecture for IP networks based on European standards for law enforcement interception. It had good recommended suggestions. These weren't followed. They were implemented. It's easy to spoof and allow interception. Making it easy to wiretap means more wiretapping. So in the U.S., we had the Department of Justice allowing a report on the use of exigent letters. Exigent letters are... um, Letters that say we need to wiretap now, or we need con- uh, communications transactional information now. We'll give you the legal stuff later. What do you guess happened? All sorts of abuses, including abuses of tapping the press, getting that information on the press without proper procedure. We have a First Amendment on freedom of the press. It says you don't tap a journalist, you don't get that information on a journalist without the signature of the Attorney General. That didn't happen. They tapped. They did that instead for seven months. What types of threats do we face? Well, we face terrorism, insider threat, and nation-state. And lest you think the nation-state is only one place, it's actually several. The threats from non-state actors, the guys who had to take care of these messes, think of them as big deals, and they were. But in terms of long-term national security issues, they're not. Insiders are a real problem, because they know your system, they know your audit mechanism, they know how to get around your vulnerabilities. And there are many flavors of insider threat. It doesn't just have to be Kim Philby can be Bradley Manning. The threats from state actors, we've been hearing about that all week. So I won't go through those, um, except to say to you, those are the serious ones. Is anyone spying? Well, the answer is yes. During the Cold War, we had the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union um, figured that they would switch to defense contractors, because those were less well protected. Then it wasn't just the Soviet Union. We discovered it was our friends. France, Israel, Japan, you have a different set of friends, but I'm sure your friends are also doing it. Um, The FBI estimates the cost at 200 billion, but nobody, no one knows the real cost. Let me switch entirely. This is Katrina, and this you guys should recognize. What risks do we face? We face serious natural disaster risks. The U.S. is actually in a relatively protected position, aside from Katrina. We haven't suffered really serious damage from, from natural disasters but you can see how badly Asia's been hit over the, dec- over the centuries. What do you need during those times? You need be- emergency responders to be able to communicate. In the US, if you see a police car, he's got six antennas. He's got six antennas because he's got to be able to communicate with police, fire, EMTs, emergency responders, in his community and in the community in the, in the, uh, state, in the county next door. So you need his interoperability, interoperability, but you also need security. And so now I have an interesting story to tell you. I talked to the NSA as I was writing my book. And I said, so how do you want emergency responders to, to work? And they said, we want secure, interoperable land mobile radio. Why land mobile radio? You can't use satellite. You can't use cell phone or regular phone because they may go down in an emergency. You can't use satellite because they might be tall buildings. There might be clouds. Instead, you use land mobile radio. This guy said to me, we want land mobile radio, secure land, interoperable land mobile radio, available in what's called Radio Shack. I don't know if you have Radio Shack here. Um, it's available in the malls. Why do you want that? Well, they can buy it cheaply. They can use a secure interoperable system cheaply. Of course, so can others. But that's where national security wanted us to head. Let me tell you one more thing about the U.S. We have this preamble to the Constitution. It's only very rarely used in law cases, but there's an important piece of it. Secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. You build wiretapping capability into a communication system, it stays a really long time. You try to deal with an emergency threat now by building a wiretap capability into your system now. You might take care of the threat now, but five years, ten years, twenty years down the road, you still got that wiretapping capability, and somebody else can break into it. In order to enable communication security, to get it right, you want to have secure communications when you have a disaster, whether natural or otherwise. And the natural ones happen much more often. You want to secure civilian communications, and that just doesn't, that doesn't just mean you to your, your mom or your dad. It means your company to my company, your customer to my, uh, to my customer, and so on. It, and you want to su- enable successful investigations. But you want to do it in that order. Those are, you're going from most important to least important, even though Law enforcement doesn't see it that way. How do you get surveillance right? Use transactional information. It's incredibly valuable. Use the vulnerability of the end hosts rather than building it into the infrastructure. And then finally, like the NSA, use clever solutions. So I think now I have told you why the NSA and the FBI have split on this. Because they have different viewpoints. The point is that CALEA costs, but law enforcement isn't the one that's paying. It's we who are paying, whether it's in... In Greece, or in Italy, or anybody who implemented that Cisco router, um, we are the ones who pay by the insecurity built into our communications networks. Securing society. Securing communications is necessary for freedom, security, human dignity, and the consent of the government. If we don't respect the privacy and security of communications, we don't have anything. We don't have a nation anymore. It should be designed, communication security should be designed with the principle of securing the blessings of freedom for posterity. You look at long-term versus short-term. You build insecurity into your network, it's there for the long-term. Even if you get that bad guy right away, you've built it in for the long-term. This one might seem trivial, but it's not. As we know from the Arab Spring, as we know from the situation I just described about the U.S. journalist, communication surveillance should not impede the working of the press. The press, the canaries, and the coal mine. You impede the working of the press, next you're going to impede the freedom of the people. And then any suspension of communications privacy must be brief, measured in days or weeks. So I can imagine a disaster where the government really does eavesdrop and really need to eavesdrop. I can unfortunately imagine such disasters. But if you make it a suspension of privacy for months and years, you build it into the infrastructure, and it's game over. So measure it out in days and weeks. You guys know this keyboard. You all use it. It was designed so that the mechanical keys didn't hit each other which is really useful in our day and age. I have a typewriter. I could play Eugene here and ask how many of you still have a typewriter, but I think I know the answer. Um, uh, We all have keyboards like this, even though the purpose for it is long gone. Infrastructure lasts a long time. Don't build insecurity into communications networks. And with that, I'll end, and we'll do a book signing upstairs, Adam and I, for different books. Thank you.